Hello everyone, it's Editing George here. Just a quick note before we get started to say that something went a bit weird with my microphone during this episode, so it does sound like I'm recording on the surface of the moon at times. Hopefully it won't impinge on your enjoyment too much. Anyway, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 60th episode of the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown. I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs and head of inspiration at Scribehound. I've got to say that when I committed us back in April to produce an episode every two weeks without fail, I thought we had maybe a 50% chance of achieving that. Um, But uh, here we are almost exactly five months later and somehow we've managed to do 10 episodes without a break. Uh, So fingers crossed we'll be able to do the next 10 Uh, And we'll hit that century before too long. But I'm pretty excited to have hit another milestone. Um, Anyway, as usual, I'm joined by my erstwhile co-host, founder of Guns on Pegs, Chris Horn. Chris, it feels like a while since we've recorded a remote podcast like this. Yeah, I feel a lot more in control of my own choice of drink. It's nice. Uh, I mean, the last time we were out, I had a much better drink, which was a lot better than what I've got now. But it's quite nice just to be able to, um, yeah, everything at my desk here, all all comfortable. Um, You know, you just said every two weeks uh yeah so i've told you this someone came up to us at the game fair and he said um oh yeah it was a really nice idea to commit to recording every two weeks it's a shame you haven't done it though <laughs> i was what? like what? what we've tried so hard to make it every two weeks <laughs> I, I am deeply offended <laughs> I know. whoever that is is banned <laughs> um it's a shame. I was really, yeah, I was put out by that for you, really, because I know you've tried very hard. But anyway, we're here. So all good. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I think we should just push on, Chris. Um, we've got a very nice guest with us again today. Um, why don't you tell everyone who it is? We've got a legend of the sporting art world with us today. Um, he's been a wildlife artist for 30 years. He's also a journalist who's been known to conduct some of the thorniest interviews with opponents of ours. He's a very passionate conservationist and ringer of woodcock. Getting on to that in a bit, looking forward to that bit. Uh, and now he's a scribe hounder uh, going live in September. We'll also come on to that because that's going to be new to a few people. He's also Welsh, so he's already given up on hopes of uh, Rugby World Cup in a couple of months' time. <laughs> uh, so if you're on your ride on lawnmower, take both hands off the steering wheel and give a big hand to Owen Williams. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. It, it's great to have you with us, Owen. It's really nice to have you with us. Are you okay with the uh, the, the rugby tribe? Yeah, listen, that's all just push and shove. It's fine. There's been a lot going on um, <laughs> recently on the internet about that. Um, it'll all die down and it'll all be sorted on the field anyway. So that'll be very interesting to watch. Are you feeling confident? I'm not going to go that far. I think it's wide open. Um, depends on what happens in the next week with Owen Farrell, doesn't it, really? Well, so well, he got he got the red rescinded, um, which which uh, I mean feels like I don't know. I feel like there's more to more to play than just a straight decision on a red card there. Well, I, I yeah. think that I think I heard this morning that that that's being appealed. That res, the the, res, the rescinding of the red card is being appealed. So they appealed the red and then appealed the decision and then the, <laughs> yeah, it's still yeah. in the mix. It, it's it's kind of like uh, if Virat Kohli got banned from the first match of the Cricket World Cup, they would just say, no, no, it's fine, you can play. 
Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, not quite yeah. the same in level of scale, but <laughs> they don't want to ruin the spectacle. So I think that they're going to find a way to make him play. That's my opinion yeah. on it. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Um, well, Owen, I, I, Chris has obviously wound you up about rugby, but um, I wanted to ask you a question, and um, it's around uh, shooting and creativity. I think for a lot of people... Uh, shooting and fishing and, and the countryside in general are just sort of pleasant ways to spend time, pleasant places to be. But for others, uh, it's sort of a source of a deep source of inspiration. What is it about these activities that you think makes certain people want to put their creative hat on and make something? What, what is it that, that it inspires you, I guess? That's a really good question. Um, and I suppose sitting on my side of the fence, uh, I've given it a fair bit of thought, actually, because it is very uh, seminal to why uh, I got into painting in the first place, painting wildlife. Uh, and it really was about going out fishing and shooting. Um, it was about that sort of foraying out into foraying out into the countryside. That was my sort of portal into uh, the natural world. Um, but it went further than that, and, and I've written about this in the past as well. I, I, I believe we're all hunter-gatherers under the surface. We have a thin veneer of modernity overlaying some pretty strong and powerful genetic uh, forces that make us feel very fulfilled when we go and gather blackberries or mushrooms, and the same applies to fishing. It's about bringing food back to the cave fundamentally, and some of us feel it stronger than others. You might say I'm possibly a little bit more primitive than other people, because I feel that. Uh, but it's very strong with, with me and always has been. And it is about just capturing that moment. And I, I suppose as a youngster, uh, you know, I, I looked at Sir Peter Scott's paintings, uh, those highly evocative pictures of crepuscular light and geese, and that really captured my imagination. And I just wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to express that same passion that came through Scott's painting so powerfully. Uh, and that's where it started, basically. And I've been doing the same ever since. I love this hunter-gatherer discussion. I, and I, I think I think, I think think you might have raised it uh, when, I, when I've been with you before. But uh, it, I think, as you say, it's in everyone and it, to a greater or lesser extent. But it's definitely there in people and they don't quite realise it. And it's, try, it's like trying to explain why. what is it that gets people out of bed to go shooting? And you can't put your finger on it apart from that point, which is it's just there and you don't know it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I also think, you know, it is driven by that very fundamental need to have some food. You know, it's as simple as that. You know, when our Neolithic sort of forefathers were out there hunting, the day they came back with a great big aurochs that was going to last them for the next week, the pressure was off. Um, mm -hmm. And that's when minds drifted to other things and creativity started. You know, I believe strongly that's when the first cave paintings happened. And in a sense, I'm a modern day cave painter. You've absolutely anticipated my question, which was, do you see a direct line between those people who were painting bison on walls in Spain uh, and yeah. yourself? Totally. That's such a cool thing. I love that. I've never thought about it that way as well. That's awesome. Yeah. And you're right, you know, some of the first sort of figurative art in that sense is of hunting scenes, isn't it? It is. And, and you know, then you have to question what were they trying to communicate? Was it a passion for the hunt? Was it instructive? You know, I, I, I wonder whether there comes a point within your tribe, as it were, 
where you've learned all the skills, but maybe you're getting a bit sort of long in the tooth to be running after the, the, the pack on the hunt. And that the day comes, as I feel now, I'm getting older, that I can't go out on the salt marsh and plug through mud to shoot geese because it hurts. Um, but in, in those Neolithic days, maybe the, the old wise folk, uh, the old wise people who went hunting, stayed behind in the cave and painted those uh, pictures, which were a, a sense of deification of the animals they hunted. We look how well observed they are, very crudely depicted, but full of spirit and soul. Um, of, of the animals they hunted and, and uh, a real respect that came through in those pictures. Uh, but also there are certain cave paintings that, that show the, the process of hunting, which I believe are quite instructive as well. So the rite of passage for the youngster who picks up the spear for the first time, goes out and follows the tribe. He's allowed to be a man and go hunting. I know this is all very sort of uh, non-PC these days, but actually that whole thing about going out and doing it was a rite of passage. And then you get through that moment where you've proved yourself and you don't need to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, in a way, I feel a little bit that way myself right now. I've got to that age that I don't need to do it. I don't need to shoot that much more now. Uh, I'm really happy in reflecting on that. Uh, and that's why I'm quite keen on the idea of writing about it. Just to, And the opportunity to write for Scribehound is, is, is wonderful because I can explore these thoughts and, uh, and and just go through them in my, in my own mind. You see, so, well, I was going to ask, you've not been referred to as a scribe hounder before, uh, uh, but, and, and actually I must pick you up on something. You, you're going to be writing on scribe hound. You're certainly not writing for scribe Ooh, hound because, because right. you're, because you're writing for yourself. That's the, that we're so excited about this. And I, do, do you want to give your take on what scribe hound is before I sort of give the, the company line, but I'd be keen to know how you would, how you see it actually. Well, I have to say I'm I'm not 100% up on sort of, you know, the whole modern tech thing about modern communications and uh, the internet and stuff. Um, but but as a, the way I see it is that this is actually a very revolutionary step because first of all, getting people together of a like mind as we did when we had the sort of the, the dinner last week was a wonderful experience and I welcome the opportunity to to share our feelings and our views as a group read up each other's work but also meet on a regular basis to talk about some of these really complex issues because you know we're often criticized for preaching to converted and I, I'm a great believer that actually there's no harm in that because when we do that, we exercise our logic. We try it out on other people. We listen to ourselves. Mm. Uh, I, I bore my wife when I'm on a rant about the whole thing about burning heather and uh, you know upland up management and how people are getting the science very wrong on that. Um, and I exercise my debates with her to her extreme boredom when we're walking our labs up on the hill. Uh, but she's a very good sounding board. And for me, just that opportunity to talk about it is very valuable. So mm. back to Skypound, I think that is one very valuable part of it. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of readers of all the other magazines who feel like they've got something to say as well. And in a way, you, you've opened up the opportunity for people who've got very valid opinions to come and express them online. Mm. And I think that's going to be wonderfully liberating and really good for our conversation within the countryside. I just hope and pray that those outside the countryside, and particular policymakers, take the trouble to come and listen to us. 
Yeah, that's yeah, good point. So, so the, you're you're part of the the sort of thirty countryside writers that goes live in uh, mid September. We're we're keeping the date under wraps just in case we have a last minute tech hiccup, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll announce it nearer the time. Uh, and so, this is um, a, a platform that within the thirty. So. Y- gives you a monthly column from 30 of the best countryside writers on everything from country sports, shooting, fishing, hunting, stalking, whatever it may be, to the biggest rural issues, all the conversation, uh, conservation arguments, bit of farming, all the real hot topics, plus a load of humour, uh, a load of escapism in there as well, which is super important. Most importantly, the writers, the 30 writers are free of editor and brand control. It's it's unfiltered voices talking about what matters to them on a monthly basis. So every day you'll get an article from one of the 30 writers. Just take five minutes out of your social media time and just read something thought-provoking from someone who's at the top of their game. Uh, and all of the reader subscriptions go directly to the writers. So it's unleashing them to sort of bring that real enjoyment back to writing with a chance to earn properly, because we know that publishing has certainly been pressured by the social media and the internet, and and this model sort of revitalizes that. So we are super excited to have you on board. Well, that's very exciting, and thank you for that. I, I, I feel very honoured. And as somebody who's relatively new to writing, um, I, I think there's an additional thought in my mind about this, uh, and that is that um, being that I am going to have to write something every month, and I, you know, initially I thought that might become quite a difficult thing to do, but actually in the last week or two when I've been giving this some thought, it's opened up my mind to start thinking a little bit more deeply about some of the things I may have just walked by and thought well I'm not going to get sort of bogged down in that right now mm. I think that has fertilized creativity of thought uh, and and trying to harness an opinion start reading about it and actually getting out there and discovering a lot more I do a lot of reading of science uh, because I think that's the ingredient that very often is missing in some of these very big debates on policy uh, and in order to combat some of the nonsense that we hear from lobbyists, the only way to do that is to actually throw science at them. It's irrefutable. It's peer-reviewed. Uh, I'm surprised how often I do that, that they don't come back with any other science and try and combat it. They're lost. But they still cling to their beliefs that they are right, uh, and they sort of sideswerve it. But it's a good process to go through, not least that this isn't only about talking to the people who disagree with you. It's about that large floating voter of people who are listening on the sidelines, uh, listening to debate, who are listening to the science and going, well, maybe there's something right about this. You know, maybe it isn't as black and white and as binary as it's being made out. Mm. Uh, And that's good news because it brings other people into the debate, engages other people. And let's have a proper debate about the facts rather than, you know, getting too toxic about it and hurling abuse at each other. I didn't add right at the start that you're chairman of GWCT Wales. That was a fairly important part of your bio. <laughs> That's fine. No insult taken. It's fine. Um, yeah, no, it's just another thing that, that I, I'm very pleased to be engaged in because it's given me access to some of the best scientists in countryside research and habitat management. Uh, and I read a lot of their work as well. Um, and again, it's easily dismissed. I mean, I'm shocked by and we'll mention their names here, but I'm shocked about uh, quite a few high-profile people who are very happy to dismiss peer-reviewed science because it doesn't fit their their agenda. Uh, so GWCT is great in that respect, and I've always been a fan 
I got very involved with them uh, through the Woodcock ringing, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but working with them and particular Andrew Hoodless uh, on Woodcock uh, gave me an insight into how much really serious hard work goes into producing science. Um, there's a lot of grunt work in the field. It's not easy. Uh, I think people need to respect science a lot more than they do. Well, I, yeah, I'm sure we'll get onto some of those topics again later on. But I think it's very important. I'm conscious that we've been speaking for a long time and no one's got a drink yet. So um, the way we like to sort of really kick things off on these podcasts so, and is by, by uh, getting a nice full glass or something. Uh, so I'm going to ask you first, what's that you're drinking? Well, I've got something very special here. It's Hilkoman Director's Cask Single Malt that was Ooh. given to me by... Uh, one of the directors of the distillery as a gift. He was shooting on Tyree where I worked my labs on a snipe shoot uh, and it was a very welcome gift. I had a huge dilemma because this is quite a rare malt and there would be people who would say, don't break the seal, keep it, it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> Didn't take long for me to come to the conclusion because I am getting on a little bit. I'm not an old man, but uh, I've had a few health issues recently that made me realise seize the day uh, and that really took over my thinking so I have cracked the bottle and this actually is the last dram out of that bottle so I'm really glad to share it on this podcast with you today wow what an awesome. honor yeah absolutely I'm glad you have done I agree with this by the way just just crack on with all these things great Drink there's it. never never a better moment than now cheers to that <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Cheers. Chris what about you what have you got today uh, George, I've got a story. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, we got invited to the Shuffle Ptarmigan 30th anniversary shoot. Oh, yes. I couldn't go, sadly, but uh, you did quite well, I think. Uh, so me and Dad and Rodri Thomas, who works at Stratton Parker, uh, we turned up as a, a trio just having a nice fun day out and a good catch up together. Uh, didn't pay any attention to what was going on in the shooting. I was sort of borrowing a gun, occasionally using my side-by-side, just messing around. And and anyway, as with all these things, when you don't think about it, it goes quite well. So we ended up in the shoot-off with the EJ Churchill team, who were taking it very seriously, wow. as as they do, and and Richard Folds' team, the uh, Olympic gold medalist, no less. And so I, I, we felt very out of place <laughs> to be in this shoot-off. Uh uh, obviously, we came third to that lot. I wasn't wasn't expecting anything else, but it was quite funny uh, to be in that. And so we got ourselves a lovely Shuffle Ptarmigan gin, a whole bottle of it each. Oh wow! Uh, to which celebrates thirty years of the Shuffle Ptarmigan, the very famous jacket which um, Corey Cavill Taylor came up with thirty years ago, um, uh, along with Peter Schoffel. And um, yeah, so it was thirty years of that, and it was a real honour to be there. Uh, great fun. Came away with a bottle of gin. Now got a drink on a podcast. It's a really, really strong, humble brag. I think you've done well. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> here's the shuffle. Well done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent. That's uh, very nice. So you've got gin and tonic. Yeah, gin and tonic. But I've, I've got Yorkshire tonic in it, uh, which, as quite a lot of listeners know, we love good old strong tonic. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, enjoyable. How about you? You remember at our 50th episode recording at Clay's in London, uh, yep. one of our listeners very kind, well, two of our listeners gave us some drinks. Um, yep. Obviously, the whiskey didn't last very long at all, um, but yep. we were also given a bottle of gin each. Now, I don't get through a lot of gin, and I've still got quite a lot of 
uh, other bits and pieces from other things. So I thought, what can I do with this particular bottle of gin that will be fun? So I made the only bottle of slow gin that I made last season. I used this gin that we were given. And my plan is when you and one or two of our podcast listeners come and shoot here in Hampshire with us, we'll have this bottle on that day. But I thought I'd better just make sure that it's all right because, you know, slow gin can be a bit hit and miss. So I've got the tiniest little, I mean, it's barely covering the bottom of the glass um, just to make sure that it's all right. And it, it's very nice. It's maybe still a little bit on the ginny side. It probably needs a little bit longer, but it's very nice. It's nice and sweet and not quite got the syrupiness that I like in a, in a slow gin, but it's very nice. And once once I've got rid of that tiny, tiny drop, I have got uh, some whiskey to uh, top up with. Uh, oh, as we not as nice, not as nice as yours, Owen. I'm afraid to say, but um, uh, it's uh, what we is it what we a new class of drink, isn't it? Supermarket whiskey. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so at, at our podcast party at the game fair, which went off the scale again, uh, verging on security issues left, right, and centre, uh, from in terms of the number of people there and and the size of the tent, uh, but. Uh, George very kindly gave me some of his whiskey. So I stood in a chair at the side uh, with a load of George's whiskey, having a very nice time. It was very enjoyable, George. I don't really I don't really drink much of your whiskey. Thank you for that. Chris, did you say you stood on a chair? Yeah. Just, did, just to see out, over the crowd? Yeah, keep out the way. <laughs> Surveying his domain. I think I go to bed too early. I missed out. I, I normally sort of leave the game fair at about half a seven, eight o'clock when, when all the smart parties in, end and... Uh, I, I then head for home, but I, I, I think I might have to stay behind one of these years just to enjoy the rave. Oh, it's the smartest party, Owen, so you're leaving too early. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, very good. George, on that gin that you've mixed with your slow gin, didn't yeah. that very kind listener put a, didn't it have a name on the bottle of the front of the bottle of the gin? Isn't it called? It, yeah, it was labelled What's That You're called, Drinking. It's called What's That You're Drinking, yeah. <laughs> so I've got the world's only bottle of what's that you're drinking slow gin. <laughs> Very good. Um, so yeah, so that'll be good. I'll have to lock that up. Lock that up until um, when is it? You're coming November. Yeah, yeah, November. Yeah, yeah. Um, do lock it up because we will definitely finish <laughs> it for you. Right. Good. So we've all got a drink, and what we like to do now, Owen, is we do our listener correspondence section. Uh, we ask our listeners to write in to our Whose Bird Is It Anyway section with their shooting quandaries and queries and dilemmas and questions. And we put our collective minds together to try and come up with a solution. We always keep our uh, correspondents anonymous to keep them out of trouble. And this one I have decided to name Ebenezer, who has written, I have been lucky enough to shoot on a small number of days each year over the past decade. Nothing fancy, mainly farm shoots in the home counties. Despite 10 years behind the gun and many a promise down the pub, I've never got round to buying a day in return for the many kind invitations that I've received. In fear of further abuse at the bar and dwindling invites, and to the dismay of most of my friends, I've finally pulled my finger out and purchased a day. I'm fortunate enough that a cousin of mine runs a small 100-bird farm shoot, and given the potential pitfalls of buying one's first day, I thought it was sensible to run this year's through the family. And then he says, as I'm sure you'll know, George, the farming fraternity tends to operate in, a, in rather incestuous circles. And I'm not going to make any comment. <laughs> um, and most of my friends already partake in a day or five at the aforementioned shoot. 
As this is my first day as host and wanting to ensure the day feels different for those friends who will inevitably shoot so many days at the farm that by the end of the season they'll feel sufficiently guilty that they arrive with flags on Beta's Day, could you suggest a few ideas to keep the day fresh and feeling different? It's probably a little late to be sneaking white pheasants into the release pens, but given the breadth of days you've both been on, as I assume as your guest, there must be some fun quirks, be that drawing pegs, over lunch or appraising one's performance down the local pub. Good, good, right. Um, Who wants to go first? I'm going to ponder on that for a while. Things to make the day a little bit different to the one that they might have turned up to the week before. Exactly. Right, I've got one. I've got, I got, well, got one to kick it off. Um, we did. I think this has been mentioned on a pod many, many times ago. But if you Google something called the Durnford Wheel, it is a peg numbering system. It only works for nine guns, by the way. You need to literally have a PhD in maths to try and make it work for ten or seven or eight or whatever. Uh, but if you Google the Durnford Wheel, you'll find a link to a page on Guns on Pegs with a downloadable thing you can print out and stick in the gun bus. It is a peg numbering system that matches you with different guns on your left and right throughout the day. Uh, so it's quite fun. That's one thing I'd do. Very cool. So I, I, I picked up on the over lunch bit. I don't know what the lunch arrangements at this farm shoots are. And, you know, farm shoots can be either quite fancy or a bit rough and ready. Um but one thing that we did last season was on it was actually on New Year's Eve. Uh, we decided to have to not have a shoot lunch, but to have a sort of extended elevenses, sort of late on in the morning. And we had that out in the field. Um, I cooked a big uh, venison chili that we then heated up over a over a log fire out in the field, um, and we had uh, had that in sort of wraps and whatnot. And what made that particularly memorable is it was absolutely pissing it down well not down pissing it sideways it was such such a foul day that the uh sort of gazebo tent thing attempted to blow away and we all had to stand there and hold it to stop it from flying off it was just a really nice way to do lunch and and, you know you probably won't have weather quite as grim as that but if you can find a way of doing lunch out in the field i think that's a really nice thing to do I must add to that. You know the day when the Ineos Grenadier came out for the first time and we had it on our day in Lincolnshire? Oh, yes, yeah. Where At, at Grimsthorpe. Um, we each bought a dish. Every member of the team bought a dish of something. So there was a mixture of game and they pre-prepared it, brought it along, and then it was cooked on the barbecue. It had to be barbecuable. And um, that was a really nice touch because it was kind of like a... Not a competition, but everyone wanted to everyone to know what each other thought of that person's dish. And it, it was really fun and it was an eclectic mix. It was a really nice addition to a day. I'd encourage that. I, I think that's all very sensible. I, I'm afraid my mind went slightly smutty uh, on this. <laughs> Good. Perhaps, perhaps I, should, I shouldn't pursue that horrible cul-de-sac any further. But, but you know, I no, come from this. No, away. No, 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 no. This will not be broadcastable. I can, I can promise you that. Um, now, I think that uh, I come from this from a, a picking up perspective because uh, most of my involvement with shooting these days is working my lab on shoots. Um, I, I, I've never been a particularly good shot, and pheasant shooting isn't really my bag. I quite like w- walked up and woodcock and rough shooting a lot more. But picking up is a great delight, particularly on my small local shoots. And um, I just think it would be quite good fun on one drive at the end of it to give every gun 
a random dog uh, and set them about going and picking up um, and seeing how they get on with a complete strange dog uh, and just watching the chaos for a short while. That's probably not very constructive and uh, it might end up in tears. So no, I'll, I'll I love just, that. I'm parking that gently. You can push it into the, into the curb if you like. <laughs> oh, no, I love that. Um, it reminds me of we have a, a local rule here, which is one of the drives takes place um, in uh, with, with the guns lined out in uh, a cross-country uh, equestrian cross-country schooling field and there's a water jump uh, and depending <laughs> on the weather conditions the peg is either in front of the water jump or behind the water jump and the local rule is if you land a bird in the water jump you cannot send a dog for it you have to go and get it yourself <laughs> this is a local rule that i made up and i've not actually had the opportunity to enforce except for <laughs> once which was i think last season when it was frozen over and the bloke just walked over which was very upsetting. <laughs> that is very upsetting. If you thought about it all that time, and that was the only one. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's another thing that you could do, isn't it? Is sort of you know come up with some some sort of little local rules and have some fun with that. I um I think buy a box of black powder cartridges, stick a couple in each people's pockets in the hurry of the moment. Might not <laughs> spot what you're putting in. It's a nice little addition, little fright. And you, you get to see someone disappear in a cloud of smoke for a minute, which is always fun. <laughs> well, and uh, the other thing I was thinking, I don't know what the you know what the other days are going to be like, so it's kind of hard to say. But I would encourage as many hangers on to pitch up as possible. You know, yeah, other halves, kids, um, wildly inappropriate dogs. The more people on a day, the the more hilarity there is. Um, and if you can have a team photograph at the end that you know it has to be like a school photo with some people standing on benches and some people sitting down at the front i think that always makes for a nice day yeah yeah lovely idea always agree with that one um gosh i i should have i should have sat down with some prior warning and thought about this some more there's lots you can do but i think he's onto something i think i think this he's asked exactly the right question given his sort of dilemma prior which is you know how to make a real difference you everyone wants to make their day memorable and most people's immediate thought is well let's go to the very best shoot and this that and the other and the highest birds or whatever it might be it's rubbish that's not the way to make the day memorable um the way to make the day memorable is exactly what he's asked about which is all the nice things around it but given that that's his mindset the effort that will go into it clearly he's got a bit of attention to detail i'm sure it will come off perfectly best of luck to him yeah i actually really like that question i think it um it shows the right attitude doesn't it and i think we've given some decent advice yeah i think so there's surely there's some listeners out there that people are going to be shouting at their um mobile phones and car stereos and whatever right now there's things that people have got on that they that they've been on days and enjoyed and things that they think others should do message in pod at gunsonpegs.com this is a good one this could run and run uh just send us in the things that you think are nice additions to a day shooting yeah absolutely and speaking of nice additions to a day shooting we're going to now move on to subtractions from nice day shooting which is the forgotten drive segment that was a hell of a segue wasn't it that was good <laughs> um so we've had another for- forgotten drive which is a segment i really love and this one comes from somebody with an e- the excellent name of george um and G- george has written um i wanted to flag up a lost drive i've been shooting and picking up on the workly estate uh, shoot located just north of sheffield for 40 years or so my old boy introduced me to the shoot as a junior and i had the opportunity to shoot there from an early age the shoot is run over the Warncliffe estate and is now managed by uh, as a highly successful syndicate and commercial venture. 
Back in the day when it was a much smaller affair, the drives were a mix of boundary and fringe woods and the main central wood which bordered Workley Hall. At the centre of the main wood, there was a convergence of a number of drives, one being Keith's Down, an homage to the then keeper. As the name suggested, the drive commenced at the keeper's house and involved a long strip of ancient woodland with a good-sized release pen. It was always a good drive and made for some interesting shooting, snap-shooting pheasants through the tree canopy and the occasional woodcock flighting through the trees. The guns lined up along a small stream bed at the bottom of the strip of woodland, and the birds were well up when they reached us. Often there was a hot seat peg situated just before a small bridge where the contours would channel the pheasants, and if you were lucky enough to be on that peg, you could be sure of a busy time. It was all the more satisfying if you had a friend or a renowned poacher of other people's birds to your right and just below the bridge as you could cut them off if you were on form. The drive holds more significance to me as it was on Keith's Down, on the hot seat peg, that I was lucky enough to have a chance of a right and left on Woodcock, which I was fortunate enough to make and to have the required witnesses to the feat. I was 15 at the time, and it's etched into my memory to this day some 34 years later. 15? Right, we're coming back to that. Carry on. (laughs) Sadly, this drive is no more. It forms part of a larger drive and is merely blanked into the main wood. However, the same trees are there, the little bridge is still there, and when we park up nearby to head to our picking up spots, I always note that particular peg location with fond memories. I'm not surprised. 15, the left and right and Woodcock. You, might, you should have given up then. <laughs> but isn't that lovely? I think that's just fabulous at 15. I mean, unfortunately, if I did that, it, I think it would be downhill from there. And as somebody who's never shot a right and left at Woodcock, I've had my chances, uh, I, I must add. But um, to, to be able to do that 15. But it's interesting, that whole thought about how things change. We, we tend to think that these shoots stay the same all the time. But I was reminded the other day, I was looking at some old photographs of my village um, uh, and comparing them, and they're about 50, 60 years ago, and comparing tree growth and how much had changed yeah. in terms of the landscape. And people talk about, you know, how terrible it is we're losing our trees, blah, blah, blah. But actually, if you look back to the sort of 50s and 60s, the landscape was pretty denuded. We, we've done a lot to improve things. But certainly on shoots, when you, re- when you talk to people about shoots and how they manage drives, changes in the height of a particular tree can completely change the dynamic of a drive. Mm. And so, you know, losing a complete drive because the trees have become too thick um, is rather sad, but it's also rather exciting because it teaches us that nothing is fixed. It's It all moves yeah. forward, you know. It, it's so weird that this should be mentioned. I was thinking exactly this after looking at a photo this week of the land around us, thinking, gosh, there weren't many trees around. And I was looking at some oaks thinking, I just assume when I walk past these oaks, they've been there for, you know, a long, long time. In 1960, this photo, they're just, the oaks were teeny tiny. And you think, gosh, yeah, it is amazing how quickly the whole landscape can change beyond all recognition. The thing about the topography funneling birds in one particular direction as well, I think is really interesting. We have a drive here where, um, you know, if the wind is in a particular direction, the birds will curl on it and um, there's a big uh, conifer um, on the shelter belt and you've got two guns on one side of the belt and, and the rest of the line on the other. And they will always, always duck across the the shelter belt in front of that tree and you have to warn the the guns on the other side they're going to be long crosses they're not going to be coming at you because the wind is like this and they were going to they're going to dart this way and you have to say to the gun on the other side they're going to dart across 
if you have the chance, take them before. Otherwise, those other buggers on the other side will get the shooting and you won't. <laughs> so, yes, keep those keep those forgotten drives coming in. I really like them. That's great. Is, we reminisce so much when we chat about shooting. It's quite. I agree with you, George. Thanks for sticking at it. It's a nice segment because it is all about reminiscing. It's good. Good. Right. Well, from the positive to the negative, um, Chris, uh, there's an unpopular opinion. Tell us about it. There is. And this one um, comes from someone that George from two people that George has named Aristotle and Rene. Uh, and Owen, there's always a reason why George names these people, and I'm absolutely none the wiser. I'm sure there is. <laughs> George, any reason already? There is a reason. It's a bit esoteric. Um, and I do these mostly for my own satisfaction, really. But um, So perhaps you'd better read... Well, okay, so I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that there is a, an, an alcohol element to this unpopular opinion. Okay. And uh, if you're familiar with Monty Python, you might remember the philosopher's drinking song, which starts, Aristotle, Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle, <laughs> and Hobbes was fond of a dram, and Rene Descartes was a drunken fart, I drink, therefore I am. <laughs> I don't quite know why my mind went there, but it did. Okay. I'm impressed. I'm impressed that you, you went there. That's good. I like it. Right. Uh, okay. This all makes sense now. Right. So, and I'm not sure this is an unpopular opinion, but more of a question. But anyway, he uh, he or they ask, he asks, do you either travel up the night before a shoot or do you travel up the morning of the shoot and stay over after the shoot? The excitement of a day in the diary with your team builds for several months beforehand. You get there the day before, the suspense has built, you've travelled up or down, you get together for dinner, the dinner escalates, before you know it, it's 1am, you're trying every whiskey from Isla and one turns into two and two to three and the night is over. You wake up with the fear of pulling the trigger. You had a great night with friends, but was it worth it? The alternative, which seems a lot more sensible, everyone travels up early, still with excitement, but partnered with tiredness slow gin at 8 30 a.m goodness a fantastic day shooting and then an evening where everyone is fresh to enjoy an early evening supper the devil on my left shoulder tells me that the night before is a far better idea but the angel on my right shoulder tells me i'm far too old and that i should accept that enjoying the day with a fresh head and a few drinks after is a much better idea so he's suggesting after isn't he it sounds like he wants to do the night before, but thinks he ought yes. to do the night after. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think there's some analysis to be done here because it, it, it's actually about dealing with two pains. There's the pain of the hangover and there's a pain that I'm all too familiar with, which is shooting very poorly. Uh, and I think if they are sort of cumulative, that one stacks on top of the other, you're in for a hell of a day, a really bad day if you've sort of overdone it the night before but I've got a sneaking suspicion that if you've got such a bad hangover you the, the pain of missing really doesn't hit the Richter scale it's overlain by just the thumping head and and you do have a slight excuse that well you know I was last out of the bar last night so what do you expect <laughs> yeah yes. it's a pretty crap crap excuse I don't like hearing it I think people just should ignore it and crack on uh <laughs> Chris, you're very much in the night before camp, aren't you? Well, that's because I live in Kent. And if I have to go anywhere the morning of, I have to go near the M25 if I'm traveling. And therefore, it's impossible. Um, so I love the night before. That excitement and that pre-dinner, um, just, oh, the vibe. It's undescribable, I think, compared to any other form of 
dinner that you might have. That excitement the night before a shoot is just, I'm like a kid in a sweet shop. And then, yeah, I, for that reason, I'm firmly in the night before camp. Not not least, not just because of traveling, but if like if you took the travel out of it, I mean, if, if I haven't had it my way, I'd do both. But um, children have now made sure that that's not quite, <laughs> quite possible. But uh, yeah, night before, I think is better if you had to choose. And traveling is often the boring reason that it makes it makes it so but doesn't it also depend on 11s and uh, the possibility of a slight top up um i mean that can change the the whole game a little bit can't it if you um if you have a, a little bit of a top up you can relax a little maybe the head goes away a little bit it makes it sound like it makes this all sound like we're a bunch of alcoholics when we go shooting which is not a good look i admit but um you know i've certainly found that i relax a little bit with fishing and shooting um, if there's a little bit of a snifter at some stage in the game, it, it helps you pick your game up a little bit, doesn't it? Or, or relax. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I come down on the other side, which is I actually prefer uh, to, to have the have the do, as it were, the night after the shoot, the evening after, because I feel like if you've had a really good day in the field and you've had probably a lightish lunch, um, you know, quite a, a quick turnaround sort of lunch and a couple of drives after lunch, maybe, or you've shot through then you can have a really good feast afterwards. You can get stuck into a couple of bottles of something nice and the party can continue late on into the night. And um, I think that's a really nice thing to do. You know, if you start the party at 4 p.m., then, you know, by 10 o'clock, it's a really good party. And uh, actually that same New Year's Eve, that New Year's Eve I was talking about earlier, that got quite, quite messy towards the end, but it was a really, really good day. and, and and you'll know, Chris, from from the times that we've shot, I don't think you and I have ever shot together when I've not been absolutely hanging. That's because I do it. I, I always make sure I go out of my way to make sure that that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> you see, that, that evening, that, I like the idea of, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed those as well, the evening after the shoot. But um, I think I would be going back to our earlier conversation, I'd probably be somewhere at a wall painting uh, scenes of all the birds that I either shot or missed, uh, and being the true caveman. The night after is so good. It, 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 you're, uh, it just gets me so excited. Like la- last year, one of my favourite days was um, we travelled up the night before, fairly chilled dinner, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, but but a lot of fun still. And then everyone got prepared for the night after. And what I really enjoyed about it, and I hadn't done it in a while, is when you you know when you finish a day and you have a nice cup of tea. And everyone's just enjoying reliving the memories of, do you remember that bird you yeah. had when you were on peg six or whatever? And then usually after the cup of tea, you know, tip the keeper, I'll hop in the car and off you go. But at that point, everyone was like, so I think someone said, um, fancy a beer. And you're like, wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool moment. Uh, let me at it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And, and really, the problem is, is the death of the shooting party. Yes. You know, when yeah. it was a when a when a shooting party was a three day affair, you know, pitch up on Friday night or no, pitch up on Thursday night, you know, gentle, gentle supper, you know, no dressing for dinner. But then Saturday, you know, pull out all the stops, um, penguin suits for supper. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, a gentle start to, to Sunday, maybe a little light breakfast and then off you trundle back to london you know that's a that's the proper way of doing it ah i agree george that is the traditional proper way of doing it however i think it can be improved with turn up friday night dinner friday night shoot saturday proper shindig saturday night 
So you know how people talk back-to-back days and it's sort of one day literally back-to-back. I think the best back-to-back is Saturday, Monday. Ah. Uh, so you, sh- you, have a, you have a big party Saturday night, right? Sunday, you wake up, you have a lion, decent pint of tea in bed. Uh, and go to church. <laughs> go to church, do what you need to do. Trick, you know, have a nice chill day, uh, catch up, you know, a bit of a Sunday lunch together, the whole team, a light, sort of drawn out four or five hour Sunday lunch in the afternoon. Go to bed early Sunday night. Uh, and then have a decent day Monday and leave after the shoot Monday. And I think you've just had a decent dinner, a really big sort of proper dinner, a lunch, two-day shoot. The whole, I mean, it's just too good to be true. That's the one. That is the official Guns on Pegs podcast line. Bring back, back, back. the four-day shooting parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. It's so carried away with this. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we can but dream, can't we? Um mm. Or just make it happen. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to our invitation. Um, so Ebenezer, George, Aristotle, and Rene, and you, Owen, are now all members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters and will very soon be in receipt of their very own sets of the very exclusive, highly coveted Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. If you too have got a shooting quandary, query, or confession that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or if you've got an unpopular opinion that you'd like to share, or if you have a forgotten drive to tell us about, and you'd like a set of the garters, please drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. Now we've got some housekeeping. Well, it's more than housekeeping. If you've got a set of those garters, it just got even more exciting. So, and Owen, you're now in this category. Uh, we are having another podcast garter shoot day. So this shoot day is only open to people that have earned themselves a set of the guns on pegs podcast shooting sock garters so of course you can attend um it is a day on the 20th of october at brimsfield park in gloucestershire hosted by ben hughes who's been a guest on the pod before uh so he's pulled out all the stops and he's looking after us um it's 500 pound a gun we're doing 20 pegs you're turning up for the occasion here by the way uh we're sharing loading for one another so we're going to essentially share pegs basically to get as many people along as possible yeah so we're standing 10 standing 10 guns yeah share uh, standing 10 at any any given time sharing pegs um first come first serve in terms of emailing pod at guns on pegs.com we're going to be staying over the night before uh because of travel uh because people will be coming from far and wide somewhere not too far from from brimsfield park and gloucestershire um and um huge thanks to jake wolf who's one of the garter members who's really stepped up to the mark and made this happen we had a zoom call today with jake and 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 ben to uh to discuss what's going to happen so we are very excited by it um, yeah, so that's great. it wow uh, um oh, do you want to come picking up Will you, will you come on the day and pick up? Do you well, think that would be fun. That? I, I have a feeling I might be up on Tyree at that time, so I need to check my calendar. But, um, uh, but if I'm problems. available, that would be that would be a lot of fun, definitely. <laughs> it's such a shooting person's response, isn't it? I'm, I'm already doing something amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, if you are, we'd love to have you there. Um, but of course, you. if you if you have a set of garters... Uh, then please email pod at gunsonpegs.com. It's £500 a head, obviously the hotel on top, uh, but we're going to pick somewhere nice and affordable, dinner, drinks, whatnot. 
be awesome. Can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be great. I love the podcast shoot days. We haven't done one for a little while yet, but that one we did over at Barney's uh, in Wiltshire was such good fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was hanging that day as well. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great. So um, yes, pod at gunsonpegs.com. Let us know if you'd like to come. The night before, Owen, we, we, we the night before on that, that, sh- that pod day we had last, uh, we read out every guest that was there we read out their their sort of pod name that George had made up for them. That, <laughs> that's, that's the only way we know half these people. It, it's like... No, I want the Aristotle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but we read, we read each of them out around the table and we were saying, this is Aristotle. And he was the person who said this, that and the other. And, and, and everyone had a little giggle as they reminded themselves of that, of that moment. Uh, it was great fun. So we'll hopefully do that again. Great. Yeah. Right. So, Owen... Um, Moving on uh, to, to you, really. Um, I have, I, you know, how all footballers want to be in bands and all musicians want to be sports people. Um, I have this sort of um, incredible uh, fascination with people who can do artistic things, creative things that I can't. Um, and one thing that I really can't do is draw or paint or anything like that. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. But you taught yourself to paint, is that right? You didn't go to art school or anything like that? No, I didn't. No, I I come from an artistic family. So I suppose um, what I did have was there was always art materials around the house uh, and I was always encouraged to pick up a pencil or pen or brush uh, and make marks on paper from a very early age. And and from there you just uh, sort of experimented and, and picked things up and learnt lessons along the way? Yeah, I think uh, I'm just going back to that earlier part of our chat earlier on um, about why I got into it and the expression of of, uh, sort of passion. Um, There was a very seminal moment where I got into painting, and that was that I'd been reading lots of articles about decoying and ducks, and wire filing was really exciting to me. Crepuscular light, that fabulous atmosphere, watching the light fade on landscape and the sound of whistling ducks overhead. Um, not not the whistling duck species, the whistling the wings of ducks I had. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but just that the, the drama and the excitement of that mo- moment. And so I made a, a decoy out of polystyrene, carved it and painted it up in the shape and colour of a teal, took it up to a flight pond up on the moorland near my house here, uh, with the sort of dream that I might be able to attract any passing duck onto this pond. And this pond is a big peaty hole. There's no margins. There's nowhere where ducks would want to feed. So it's not the obvious stopover for any teal or passing duck. But in my mind, this was, you know, it was more about just doing it rather than actually it all, the plan actually working. It was all a part of that sort of exploration. And I went up that evening, put my decoy out, um, stood there, a lovely frosty night with the sun setting. And the next thing I know, there was this whoosh of a teal that came and landed next to my, te- my decoy, which is all incredibly exciting. And I was quite young at the time. I had a single barrel bicycle that I bought with my <laughs> Saturday job money. I couldn't afford the two barrels. It had to be the one. And I stood there all excited while I was squatting down in the rushes and then stood up to try and flush his teal. It took off and flew away. And at that moment, I stood up and pulled the trigger uh, and left the safety catch on. And the moment <laughs> had gone, the teal flew away, and I beat myself up about the one chance that I had of shooting a duck. 
So I pulled my decoy in and tucked in the arm and headed off across the mall and feeling a bit miserable. And as I walked, I became a little bit more enlightened to actually what had happened. And it was more about the drama at the moment. So by the time I got home, I wanted to capture that. I just wanted to put it down on paper somehow. So I got some pastels out. And that was my first um, capture, if you like, the first depiction of my, one of my hunting experiences. Uh, and it went on from there, basically. So that was really the start of it. So to go back to the question about whether I, you know, teaching myself, I was pretty poor uh, in, in terms of skills of drawing at that stage. But I think the ingredient that made that picture work was just that sheer passion. It was that excitement I had about expressing the moment on paper. Uh, and I guess over the years, I've increased what I call my vocabulary. That is my skill in using watercolour so I can say more things with it. But actually, the passion was still is still there and was there right from the start. And I think that's probably what made people want to buy my my earlier art, which was pretty poor, really, as a as an amateur painter. Have you still got the teal drawing somewhere? Sadly not. It went into the loft and uh, pastel on paper doesn't last very long in that sort uh, of environment. I wish I had it. That's so sad. I love the story, though. That's exactly what it's all about. Yeah. Okay. And I'll tell you what else I really love is the um, the, the metaphor of, of you know, um, uh, uh, technique as being your vocabulary um, and, and the way that you can tell a story through the medium, the visual medium. Um, I think that's a really nice, a really nice way of thinking about it, and and it got me thinking about something. Chris, I don't know if this is true of your family home, certainly true of mine, which is that my my parents' home is full of sporting art of various uh, descriptions, um, and I think a lot of it was probably inherited from my dad's parents. And one of the notable features of it is that a lot of it is all quite brown. Um, there's not a lot of color going on. And it feels to me like uh, the the modern way, uh, the, the contemporary way of, of doing sporting art is very different from that, that it's almost a different language altogether, to continue your metaphor. There's a lot more colour, there's a lot more light. Um, and it's certainly true of, of your work. How do you approach something like that do you think is, is light the thing you're thinking about is it color is it yeah you put your finger right on it um I, I i really i suppose to be honest with you i think i'm a landscape painter first and foremost um it, it's about it's about capturing those moments and that is all about light particularly as i said before about crepuscular moments you know i i just i i find the drama of early morning dawn and dusk low light really exciting there's something Again, it's. I think it's probably deep in our genes. It, it's the 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 dawning of a new day, the light coming up on the landscape, or the night coming, and the excitement that that brings, the darkness, the mystery of that moment. Um, so for me, that's that that sort of fired off an interest in light. And I can remember I, I spent my first couple of years living in Lincolnshire, uh, and I can remember very distinctly looking out over a landscape. There'd been a big thunderstorm going on, and very inky, bluey black sky. And I remember being very aware about the age of four, I suppose, four, maybe three, four, looking at a telegraph pole that had always appeared dark against the sky, actually appearing light in contrast to the dark background. Gosh. And being suddenly aware of that. And it captured me. I was amazed. Now, I think that's pure observation. It's just looking at it and analysing 
And I don't know whether that's instinctive. I do come from an artistic background and maybe, you know, my parents, my grandmother was a great artist, um, and, you know, uh, a grandfather painted a bit, my mum was as well. I don't know whether there was something in the genes that makes you look at the landscape that way. But that set the ball rolling. I started looking at landscape in a different way. So today, you know, my paintings, I, I, particularly watercolour, getting the landscape right is so important. Putting the birds in is almost secondary. They're, they're sort of tan- transitory through a landscape. You know, a grouse on a grouse wall, mm. it's there and it's gone. But the mood remains. But it, it it's supercharged by the passage of that bird through. And that's, I guess, what I'm trying to capture, that added sort of buzz when you see a woodcock flitting over trees in the dusk light or whatever. I, I guess it's the 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 wildlife that gives it the story, right? It's the it, yeah. if, if without that it's a static landscape, but but with it it's a living landscape. It is. And and I think because it's sporting art, it isn't just, oh look, there's the bird. Uh, you know, we've all been there. It triggers memories of, of moments that we had. Yeah. And so you're I, I remember uh, one amazing moment at the game fair when I was exhibiting with, you know, we were, Red Spot artists had a huge stand at the game fair. Um, we used to exhibit a lot of work. And um, and every evening we'd sort of have a barbecue, a, a bit like Guns on Pegs, but never as raucous as that because we were artists and fairly staid. But, uh, well, hang on a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was just chucked in as a bit of a hand grenade. Um, and it had the desired effect. Thank you. But I remember, we, we, you know, I kept my stand open, and actually in the forlorn hope somebody might come along and kept all the lights on the pitch. Somebody might buy a painting quite late in the day. And this lady came on the stand and she walked around and I was having fun with my fellow artist and, uh, and drinking and chatting away. And Sally, my wife, walked up and said, oh, so the lady wants to know about a painting. Um, so I went in to talk to her. It was a little watercolour, very simple little watercolour of duck, evening light. And she said, um, uh, where is that? And I said, well, it's no, nowhere in particular. She said, but, but I've, I've been there. And I said, well, it's nowhere in particular. She said, no, you don't understand. I've been there emotionally. And for me, that was uh, it was wow. so moving to have wow. that, that yeah. feedback. And I thought, yes, that's what I do. I trigger those memories. And when people see that picture and it triggers a memory, they want to buy it because they want to trigger it again and again. Uh, and, and that's really what art should be about. That's Speaking so cool. The soul. Yeah. One, one more question about, about technique then. Um, watercolour is your, your main medium, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Is there a particular reason that you've decided to focus on that? Or Yeah, good point. Um, is there something about it that, that, that lends itself well to what you're trying to achieve? Very much so. You've got it. Um, I, I uh, there was a great artist J.C. Harrison who painted a huge number of paintings, fabulous uh, landscapes in watercolor, and he had that lovely sort of Victorian approach to watercolor painting, uh, not overworked, not too fussy, quite loose. Uh, and his birds were really good. His grouse, his woodcock were well observed and well well drawn, uh, and I loved his work. Um, and he really was the person who inspired me to, to go down the watercolour path. Because, of course, Peter Scott was a, was an oil painter, first and foremost. Uh, but I, I just loved the, the efficiency of watercolour. And there is something, you know, talk about light. Um, skies are so important in paintings. And watercolour is very natural because it's the white of the paper 
that glows through. And it mm. gives us a luminescence that I know you can get in oils. And there are a lot of good, very, very good oil painters. You know, Roger McPhail and Ben Hoskins, my, my contemporaries and good friends, do amazing stuff with oil painting. But I still cling to watercolour, although it's a really hard taskmaster. If you get it wrong, you might as well just tear it up and start again because you can't fiddle with it. Mm. Uh, but I love the discipline it brings. And... Um, it, it, it's hard, hard work, but I've spent a lifetime, and it's really too late to change horses now. I, I, I think I've mastered it sufficiently to carry on until the end of my days. <laughs> I've been scanning through your website, your paintings, whilst doing this, and all this stuff about you know the the, the picturing the moment or, or that particular place that potentially isn't is, is fictional. It can so relate to that. There's some stuff on there; it just really gets you going. Um, yeah, very exciting. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about Red Spot Artists. You mentioned them a second or two ago. Uh, it, t- tell us a bit about that, how it came about, who else involved. Well, we were uh, a group of artists. I mean, it started, the, the, there's, a, there's a very fine artist and, uh, and who became a great friend. I met him a few times at the early game fairs I used to exhibit at, and uh, a guy called Beresford Hill. And Beresford was uh, a very gregarious chap, and he's 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 now getting on so he doesn't paint very much his eyesight's going but i phone him up these days and he's as young as ever he's one of these really young spirits and he's great fun and always very upbeat and good fun to talk to and beresford being very sociable um decided that actually there were a lot of artists suddenly turning up at the game fair to sell their work and we all got on pretty well considering we were competing with each other and he had this idea that we ought to actually meet more often and share notes um and and have some parties together and maybe exhibit and um so simon gudgeon who was exhibiting at the game fair at the time um got together with a group of us and said ben uh simon gudgeon uh ben hoskins rather simon gudgeon myself and beresford hill did an exhibition out in holland at the invitation of of a customer who said you know bring your work over and we'll have a show And it went so well and we had such a great time together. We decided that we needed to do more of this. So we then gathered others together uh, and we decided to take a stand at the game fair. And uh, it became quite a large feature, actually. I mean, we had one of the big, biggest non-organizational stands. Uh, You know, organizations have Basque and people like that have big stands. But we were one of the biggest there. Uh, with nine artists at one time exhibiting with a walkthrough gallery uh, with hundreds of paintings and sculptures on sale. And so, we, you know, quite a feature. You know, we, we, we've all got to the point now where we're busy doing commissions and actually it's really hard work putting shows on at game fairs, as you guys yeah. would know, with the guns on pegs. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a young man's game. Um, so we're getting to the point now where we're not doing as many exhibitions together. But in its, in its heyday, it was... Uh, it was great, great fun. So we had a, a lot of laughs together. Yeah, younger than us, I might add, for the game fair. You need to be younger than we are, yeah, for sure. Looking at your stuff here, it, it, people are going to be listening to this who maybe they, they, they definitely know your work, but they haven't connected it to who they're listening to. And it, it's what's quite funny is you will definitely know an Owen Williams painting if you're big into your shooting i think that's the sort of way of putting it so i encourage people to go google it and all this is going to start jogging memories um, that's nice I, I hope i haven't reached saturation point out there <laughs> you, you've had magazine covers and whatnot so oh, yeah, that's yeah 
exactly. But um, it feels to me, and and I suppose it could I could be completely wrong because I've only started paying attention in in recent years. But it feels to me like that there was probably a golden age of sporting art, probably in the. I don't know, probably in the twenties or something like that. But it feels to me like we're kind of that. There's a hell of a lot of really great artists who are painting, you know, traditional uh, countryside scenes, as it were. And and that there's in particular a really interesting group of younger artists coming through as well. Are there any people of? Uh, I hope you'll forgive me for for putting it like this. Of a younger generation who who you think people should be paying attention to. Yeah, I think there are, you know, people. I think there's sort of a, a number of them. Uh, Claire Brownlow is is one of them who, you know, with this, her sort of splashy paintings, you know, is is ploughing a new furrow. I, I think it's an interesting point. You know, the Victorians, uh, and you think about J.C. Harris and Archibald Thorburn were all uh, heavily inspirational in how we approached our, our subject. Um, you've seen an evolution through my generation of artists who've broadened it, but you know people like Claire Hackness is another one who, who's painting you know interesting work. There's a lot of them out there now, and you know I welcome that. I, I would say actually we, we are probably in the golden era of sporting art right now in terms of the variety and the quality we've got. And you know I, I think you know looking at young people coming in now. Uh, there's a huge amount of potential. Looking at myself and how I've developed, it's taken years and years and years to refine to where I've got to now, and there's still a long way to go in terms of painting the perfect picture. But I, but I think that when some of those artists um, develop their style and refine uh, in their later years, we'll be producing really stunning work. But I do look at people, and you know, my good friend Roger McPhail, who's probably one of the the greatest and most well-known and well-respected uh, sporting artists of our era. Um, I think he's, you know, he's right up there. I mean, I think if you look at him, you realise how good it can get. But there's this whole thing about standing on the shoulders of giants and the next generation will pick it up and they'll evolve it and move on. Um, but certainly in terms of diversity, there's all sorts of stuff going on now. And we have broken away from the traditional Victorian spot of sporting are that mm. you know our grandfathers and our fathers collected and uh, we see on walls all over the place so do you have a favorite species or sort of subject well you know it won't surprise you and many people to know that it's woodcock um and that this is about painting uh from my passion and my excitement but i mean i, I you know I, I i paint stalking pictures you know i've hunted in africa i've shot bob white quail in america i've done quite a lot of stuff um but the ones that that really get me excited are those it, it it's it goes back to that rough shooting goes back to my youth the things that really f- triggered me uh, and got me excited and as i say those crepuscular moments that evening early morning light and, you, and you've got really involved in woodcock T- could tell us a bit about this yeah well i i uh it, it goes back quite a long way I, I i i grew up in west wales and as you know west wales is a very good place for wintering woodcock and yeah you know um a, a lot of shooting people in england got into pheasant shooting it wasn't so big here in west wales or in wales in general until quite recently we've seen the you know the, the bigger shoots turning up um but uh woodcock was probably the main fare for the average shooter the the you know the rough shooter and the average guy who went out with a gun and his spaniel 
Uh, and I lived next door to a guy called Di Morris Jones, who is a distant relative, actually, because uh, my family go back a long way here in Wales. Um, and he was absolutely passionate about Woodcock. He was called the Woodcock Wizard. Um, he was, uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, there were articles about him shooting times. But he was steeped in it. And um, he had an old greener gun and a spaniel and used to go out and just shoot Woodcock on, a, a, you know, almost every day. Uh, until his dying day, actually. And um, he was, uh, he actually was quite instrumental in me getting into um, painting because, painting sporting scenes, because uh, the flight pond I told you about where I put my little um, decoy, um, I used to walk back past his house uh, on the way home through the dark and would pop in and have a chat with him. And I wouldn't leave there for two hours because he'd regale me with stories of shooting and guns and he was encyclopedic. Uh, but and I saw Woodcock there for the first time, a brace on his table, um, and marvelled at how beautiful they looked. The problem with him was uh, that he tied up all the shooting rights locally, uh, and there was no way I was going to get a look in. So it was a sort of forbidden fruit. And I have to say, when I finally shot my first Woodcock, which was quite late in the day in terms of my shooting. Um, it was at West Dean at a Red Spot artist shoot set up by um, it was in, by the invitation of Simon Gudgeon in about, I think it was about 2000. But it was a bit like losing my virginity. I'd yearned for it for so long. But it, <laughs> but it was that forbidden fruit and the mysticism of the species that really sort of added to the desire to know more about them. I flushed one walking back from a lake where I locally where I'd been wildfiring, and it came out of the heather, and I saw the silhouette of it. And again, I was unloaded. I was walking through long heather, and so I, I didn't even get a chance to shoot at it. But I saw it flying away, silhouetted against the, the light of Aberystwyth, uh, and again, captured my imagination. Wow, what a bird. Um, and then got into more and more sort of fascinated by them, started painting them. Uh, and then about 10 years ago, Perhaps becoming a little bit more aware of uh, our need to be accountable in terms of sustainability. Um, I, I was pretty sure that woodcock shooting was sustainable um, in the UK, but we couldn't say so with any certainty. And one of the things that worried me was that we didn't know enough about their population dynamics and the numbers, where they were coming from, stuff like that. And I'd seen uh, French shooters getting involved in ringing woodcock and catching them at night using a lamp and a net uh, and realised it was something we could do, we could replicate over here in the UK. Uh, and going back into the sort of late, or the mid-90s, I suppose, uh, and perhaps a little earlier, um, Game Wildlife Conservation Trust was doing a lot of research on woodcock, um, but they were studying them on a few sites in the UK, and it struck me that actually we needed data from right across the UK to really get an understanding of population dynamics and migratory movement. And so the idea of replicating what the French did by harnessing the passion of shooters to go out and learn how to ring the species was a good idea, and it'd been very successful over there. And so I started something called the Woodcock Network, um, and we got a group of people together uh, to try and promote woodcock ringing among the shooting community. What, one of the problems I hadn't realised was going to be a difficulty was the fact that there were so few ringers and ringing trainers out there who knew the technique of catching woodcock at night with a lamp and a net that we weren't able to put these keen shooters together with trainers. 
And so that stalled things a little bit. We got a few signed up, but not many. But what I also did with uh, a guy called Tony Cross, who trained me, who's just a, a legend in the ringing world, bird ringing world here in Wales, um, was he agreed to train me. And um, what we managed to do was to talk to the BTO ringers uh, and, and wrote articles in the BTO magazine about woodcock ringing and how you could go out and do it. And as a result of that, more and more ringers are now going out and catching and ringing woodcock. So we've now got to a point where we're ringing about 1,500 to 2,000 a year. Wow. Now, that's a valuable contribution to the database. That, that's yeah. giving us data. Because prior to that, it was around about 50 or 60 a year done on those few sites where people like Andrew Hoodless were doing specific studies or putting radio tags on them. So it wasn't geographically widespread enough. So this is now adding to the picture, which is really great. And um, so that that's really sort of wh- why I got into it. Um, uh, it was that desire to fill in some of the knowledge gaps about the species. So, so when you're trapping woodcock at night with a lamp and a net, I'm assuming this net is on a fairly long stick. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a three-litre pole, which is very ungainly. I mean, it's carbon fibre, um, but it's hard work because there's a lot, if it's wet and the net gets a bit wet, the weight on the end of it is quite heavy. And if you've got a strong wind blowing, you're battling against the wind a lot of the time to try and hold that net steady as you do those last steps very quietly on tiptoe almost towards the bird so you can drop the net onto the bird. A lot of them get away. They are so quick at flushing. Uh, it's remarkable. You think you catch more, but a lot just squeak out between the net and the ground. <laughs> it must be incredibly exciting. It is. I mean, everybody who I've taken out with me are just mesmerised by it. And and actually, it's hunting. I mean, a lot of bird <laughs> yeah, yeah. say yeah. it is. I mean, a lot of bird rivers will tell you that that it's just another form of hunting. You know, it has a, a scientific sort of outcome so it's it's really good but actually you know a lot of my hunting drive gets satisfied on those dark nights out with that net catching woodcock i reckon you could sell it yeah i, well, <laughs> I, I agree and surely surely you spend the whole time talking ratios as well like as in as in i went up on four and i only got one in the net i bet you do yeah yeah no i do uh it, it's painful sometimes i mean i i've had tv cameras following me um and it is really painful when you really want to catch one and show it to somebody and you're out for three hours and you're still blanking it can be that bad some nights particularly when it's frosty and the ground is crunchy but yeah ratio yeah you know ratios are, are it's yeah it's just like shooting ratios are really important um you know i i, I don't get longer nets like longer barrels and i don't i can't just choke <laughs> um, it, it's the same over the kit every time but 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 actually on a serious point um I, I do take people out with me, but actually, like everything that you do in hunting, you get into the zone. You're in that little bubble, that sphere of light that your lamp casts. And when you're on your own, you really concentrate. You're picking up nuance. You're concentrating on footfall, the ground, stepping over that that old thistle head because it will crunch. You're thinking. You're watching the bird. You're trying to read its behavior. Um, and you're in the zone. And so having somebody else with you, in a way, sort of breaks the concentration a little bit. So it, mm. it's it, it's very much mm. solitary business. But I love it. I, I, I absolutely adore it. I can't get enough of it. 
can I bring this on to the shooting of Woodcock? Because it gets a lot of airtime. Yeah. Um, for the reasons that you've already sort of alluded to. I mean, uh, I, I don't know what the average journey is for a migratory woodcock, but it's, I mean, it's a lot of miles, thousands of miles, I'm guessing, uh, to, to go, you know, backwards and forwards. Uh, you've then got, I mean, maybe you want to give the overview of why this debate over shooting woodcock is is so nuanced. Well, it is incredibly nuanced. I mean, you're talking about a species here uh, where we have a resident, small resident population, uh, and then you have another population of migrants that come in from late October all the way through. In fact, they come in um, until sort of early December when the bulk are usually here by that time. But you also get some some coming in even later than that, right through to January. You can get little fluxes of birds coming through as well. So you've got two populations going on there. Um, you've got areas of the UK where they don't breed at all, like the West, so Cornwall, Pembrokeshire, West Wales, uh, the Western extremities. Uh, in fact, most of Wales, you don't get breeding woodcock. So the, the decline in woodcock, which is of concern to everybody and it should be, only applies in areas where they breed. Now, the other factor is that when those migrants come in, of course, they water down the numbers. So if you were to shoot really on early on, before all the migrants have come in, you're going to have a bigger impact on our resident population. And this has been about, this is what a lot of the talk has been about. And GWCT have done some work on this, and they've been advising people, as probably most people know by now, that the wisest thing to do, if, if you're in an area where you have resident breeding woodcock, not to start your shooting until the beginning of December. We did a survey uh, a couple of years ago, and we found that actually 75% of shooters were sticking to that new advice, which is pretty good. So I'm quite relaxed about the sort of impact we're having. Um, the other data that Andrew Hoodless has been gathering uh, would suggest that the shooting impact is not high enough. So it's within a sustainable harvest level that is unlikely that we're having uh, a, a significant impact on our resident population. But of course, people are concerned about the decline, but they also have to bear in mind that there are other factors that are probably driving that decline way higher than any potential shooting impact. And mm. we're talking about several things here. It might interest people to know that in Ireland uh, in the early 19th century, there were very few records of woodcock breeding in Ireland at that time. And yet by the time we got to around about the 1880s, they were widespread. Now, there's, there's obviously a good reason for that. Some people will argue that's because uh, shoots have been planting trees and pr producing the sort of cover for game birds, and that mm. benefited breeding woodcock. But I think there's yeah. another factor at play here, and that is climate change. Now, you know, at that time, we were coming out of what we called the Little Ice Age, and that, that lasted for hundreds of years, several hundred years. But in the early 19th century, we're still getting some really bad, uh, very unsettled spring weather, which is exactly when you don't want bad weather, when you've got woodcock chicks hatching. They're very susceptible to damp um, and chill. Uh, and therefore, it's not surprising they weren't breeding particularly successfully and probably sufficient because it was so wet and cold that they just weren't there at all. So the breeding range had shrunk back as that really cold, damp weather pushed forward. Now, 
we're moving towards climate change where things are warming, it's quite likely that that breeding range is extending further westwards because the conditions are more suitable. And that probably explains why we saw that change in Ireland. And if you look at Gilbert White, Gilbert White was was, uh, discussing the fact that he didn't believe that many woodcock bred in the UK uh, in his time. And so this identifies the fact that we all, we tend to think that things are very static. They change due to climate. But there are other factors as well. Uh, I think woodland management is really important and key in this as well. If you look at what's changed since the war in terms of woodland management, in particular coppicing, which was widespread in the 50s, that mm-hmm. gave a wonderful variety of habitat and understory, which is ideal for breeding woodcock. Yeah. When the canopy closes, which it has now, and there's some good research demonstrating that, we're now up to, you know, the, the, the woods we do have are closed canopy, what they call closed canopy. That shuts out the light. It reduces understory cover, and it reduces the cover for woodcock chicks to keep them warm and protected from predation. So this is having a real impact because we're just not managing our woods anymore. It's very difficult to get a license to to cut down trees now. You know, if they're over a certain height or age, you know, you have to. Well, it is, but it, but it's actually more. Yeah, it, it is more about how we, um, you know, opening windows in 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 woods, uh, letting the light in, which is what we do on pheasant shoots. Uh, is highly beneficial for not just woodcock but many other species. So. You know, people who want to ban shooting seem to forget those are the sorts of things we contribute to biodiversity, uh, that if you ban shooting, there'd be no centre to do that anymore. And that, that does lead on to a really important point here. I've been on so many shoots that are traditional woodcock shoots where the owners say, my grandfather planted those trees there for woodcock. You know, my father planted that clump of trees over there for woodcock. We shoot woodcock here. We've provided the habitat for them, either to breed or for the migrants. Uh, And if you disincentivize that, what I like to call sort of enlightened self-interest, you're going to lose out on that voluntary contribution to biodiversity and habitat that shoots bring. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So can, can we can we just skip back and try and summarise the advice for shooting people in regard to woodcock? Because I think it's really important. Although that stat came out that seventy five percent of people were hearing, I I don't know about this, and I, I think there's a lot of people that maybe don't shoot woodcock because they just don't know and they know it's talked about. Yeah. So let's let's try and educate just summarize because i think also that the argument about the west extremities is only migratory that sort of stuff you know where does it apply to where does it stop or is it should it just be a straightforward rule for the uk well i i i disagree with that last statement no it should be a straightforward rule across the whole of the uk there was a petition to ban woodcock shooting in wales uh last year i think or the year before mm-hmm. um uh, and it had no validity whatsoever because we have so few breeding woodcock in wales right. that, that banning woodcock shooting where you're shooting migrant woodcock would have no impact whatsoever on the decline in woodcock in the UK. Uh, And that highlights the the problem for legislation. Um, A devolved government means that different areas can apply different rules. That's that's true enough. But to go back, I value the opportunity to to try and explain the thinking behind this, because I agree. I mean, I come across a lot of people who say, well, we just don't we just don't shoot them at all. And that's fine. And people make their own personal judgment, A, on the species and whether 
now they know a lot more about them. They don't want to shoot a bird that travels two, 3,000 miles on its migration. That's a personal choice. That's fine. Um, other people say, well, because it has an impact on them, you know, migratory woodcock passing through the Western Isles that are purely migratory. Um, people say, we well, don't shoot them here because, you know, we're worried about having an impact. And, you know, I say, well, there are a few places you might get the odd one on the Western Isles. I think Isla have occasionally have breeding woodcock there, but you're not going to do any real harm. So you shouldn't really worry about that. Um, I think if you're in an area where you do have woodcock, absolutely don't start shooting until the bulk of the migrants come in. And then when you do shoot, just shoot carefully. You know, don't treat them as a pheasant on a pheasant shoot. You know, if you want to take a woodcock home and eat it, you know, I'd say by all means, shoot your woodcock, take a brace and take them home and enjoy them for what they are, which is a beautiful game meat, which is a privilege to shoot the odd one and eat and enjoy with a bottle of fine red wine. But don't treat treat them as a, a big harvest thing yeah. on the menu. Um, and if you're if you're in an area, then it's a, a, where they where woodcock breed. It's as I say, shoot very carefully, tread tread gently. Um, but if you're shooting in general and you've got to shoot in Wales, for example, go and have a look at night. Now we've got thermal gear. A lot of keepers are out looking at foxes. You can count the number of woodcock you've got. And so the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust in Wales have got a project going on the Clean Peninsula now with a number of estates up there where they've embraced this idea of setting a bag limit according to what they've got on the ground. And I think mm. that, and they're really open to that suggestion because then – Finally, a, a woodcock shoot can say, yes, we are truly sustainable in what we shoot. Yeah. I think they always have been in places like West Wales because the, the, the global population woodcock is very robust and there's no sign that it's falling. And actually, in my experience over the past 10 years, I'm seeing as many, if not more, woodcock turning up now here in West Wales and I'm ringing and counting them than I've seen um, when I started. So I think there's a really robust population uh, and I don't think we've got any worries about sustainably harvesting that migrant population. So if you're in the extreme west of the UK, you basically don't need to worry. The further east you go, uh, the more you need to ask the, the landowner, the shoot manager, whoever it may be, about their in-situation. If you're right in the east, and this all relates to the 1st of December, after 1st of December, don't worry at all. Is that that, that's right. And I, and I would say I would actually emphasize southwest um, rather than the west, because there are places in the west of Scotland where they do breed. And that may be because uh, because of the shelter of Ireland, uh, they don't get as so much rainfall. Um, they're, they're slightly more sheltered there mm. uh, than they would be. I think the southwest is much more exposed and probably gets higher rainfall. Uh, and that's probably the limiting factor that stops them breeding here. I mean, they, they, there's no record of them breeding. I, I, I'd be really keen to do a, a study to look at uh, invertebrate life in wet woods in Cornwall and Wales and see what's available for woodcock chicks in those critical couple of weeks when they need to pack on a lot of protein, just like grey partridge chicks do. Um, mm. I don't believe it's there. There's lots of slugs and stuff like that. Um, but those invertebrates, those creepy crawly bugs that you'll get in a warmer, slightly drier wood in the east are, are exactly what those birds need an abundance of because these chicks don't probe when they're first hatched out, they don't probe for worms because they don't have their, their beaks haven't grown long enough. Uh, so they're seeking those bugs on the surface. Very interesting. Yes. Really enjoyed this conversation. So 
Owen, unfortunately, we need to wrap up. Uh, and there is a way that we finish these podcasts. And I have a feeling I know where this is going. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's one last day. Money is no object. Uh, time travel is not an issue. Where would you go? What would you do? Who would it be with? Right. Well, you know, I've given the impression I don't shoot a lot, and I do occasionally. Um, the reason I don't shoot woodcock is because uh, I stopped locally because it would look particularly daft if I ringed a woodcock on one night and then had to report it to the BTO <laughs> the very next day because I'd gone and shot it. Um, I've got no issues with people locally shooting woodcock because the data we get back from that is still valid and useful anyway. Um, but um, you know, I, woodcock shooting is still close to my heart. I have to say, um, and I think I would probably. I think I, my choice would be to go to the Isle of Cole with Rob Wainwright, um, ex-Scottish um, rugby international. I've uh, shot with him a couple of times, and he's the most amazing host, a wonderful guy, a lot of fun to be with. Uh, so he, he would, I would shoot with him. And then Peter Isaacson, who runs the shooting on Tyree next door, who's been a friend for many, many years, uh, spent a lot of great times with him, and he would be good company. Uh, this is all walked up, by the way. He would be good company walking up. Then there's a, a very close shooting buddy of mine who we did a little while finally together uh, called the Chan of uh, O'Donovan, who is a great, great pal. He'd come along. Uh, Roger McPhail, because he's just a gas to be with. He's always good fun, good value. Ben Hoskins, um, great guy to be around with the gun. And then uh, a relative, he's, uh, he's actually my half-uncle because my grandfather had a second brood, but we grew up together shooting and fishing. And all those people get it. That all those people understand that you earn your shooting, that you, you know, it's about a good walk and a good lot of fun, a lot of banter and good exercise with dogs. So shooting over dogs on coal with Rob Wainwright and that gang would be my ultimate. And I'd, I'd ask one other thing. I'd like to shoot with uh, a gun that I shot Bob White Quail with, in Alabama a few years ago, which was an 1832 Purdy, uh, which was a 20 ball, which was an absolute dream to shoot with. So if I could have that gun to go for a walk on that day, that would be the icing on the cake. <laughs> Not a problem. Well, Coming I mean, right it's up. yours. Yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't say no to that, can we? Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, guys. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, yeah, lovely, lovely. And it's so wild out there, isn't it? Totally. I, I, I remember writing an article about um, shooting on uh, on coal the first time I went up and I did an article um, for Field Sports magazine many moons ago when Mike Barnes was running it uh, as Shooting Gazette, I think as it was then. Uh, and um, I remember uh, writing that the weather uh, in, uh, in those West Niles flags its attention, its intention across the sky. If you've done any sky watching as I do, as a uh, as as a watercolorist, but also I used to do a lot of hang gliding in, in years gone by, and you watch wow. skies very carefully, um, and it does flag its intent, so you can see the weather coming in. But it's like an express train, uh, and when it hits you, you know all about it. There's a saying up there, isn't there, that um, you know when the wind's dropped on Tyree because people fall over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Amazing. very good, brilliant. Well. Owen, it's been an absolutely wonderful chat. Thank you ever so much for coming on. Great. Well, I'm really glad to say that my home and director's cask has just lasted. I had the last little sip a minute ago, so I've timed myself perfectly there. Oh, very good. Better than I did. Brilliant. The gin and tonic <laughs> finished way too early. But, uh, Guzzler. 
yeah, I know. It's Friday. Well, it's Friday. I'm going yeah, yeah. to go and have another. Well, I was going to say, I'm not ashamed to top up halfway through, which I have done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us, Owen. And look forward to seeing your installments on Scribound. I can't wait. I'm excited, yeah, yeah. really excited to write for that. That's going to be, uh, it's going to be good fun. Thank you. Cool. Great. Well, as per usual, before we go, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive, highly desirable Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions or by sharing a forgotten drive. Another reminder that if you would like to come and join us at Brimsfield Park on the 20th of October and you are a garter owner, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. First come, first served. We will be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>